In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. God willing, today we're going to continue our study of comparative religions. Um, today we're going to speak of a little bit about Hinduism, um, which I think is a religion that many of us are familiar with, at least kind of at an overview level. Um, during the 4th century BC, there was a group of people that were called the Arians, not to be confused with the Arians who believe in the heresy of Arius. This is a different group, okay? So this is just uh, an ethnic people whose name was the Arians, um, and they were actually um, the same people that developed the Greek culture. Um, they were like the before the Greeks, um, and they conquered much of present-day India. You can see here, here how they kind of came into this area of modern-day India. Their pantheon of gods, similar to that of the Greeks, combined with indigenous Indian traditions of meditation to form a loose combination of beliefs and practices that came to be known as Hinduism. Hinduism is not really one religion, but many different religions that interact and blend with one another. So actually, the, in the Hindu practice, there are many different ways of practicing Hinduism. The majority of people uh, uh, practice Hinduism through uh, a form of Hinduism that is focused on devotion to a god, where they choose a god from the pantheon or the multitude of gods, and they worship that god, and it is seen that through that worship that they would be able to attain the afterlife or moksha, which is what we will discuss. Um, but there are actually other forms as well of Hinduism. Maybe that one is the one where maybe most familiar with. Um, so, and, and there are many, many different gods and many, many different practices. So one of the fundamental uh, kind of tenets of Hinduism is the idea of pluralism. Like there are many different ways, ways and there are many different truths um, that are believed to all be somehow related together. There is no known founder and no creedal statements of faith. In fact, there is no agreed upon authority save the voluminous sacred body of texts, which are called the Vedas, which were written over a 1,400-year period. The contents of the Vedas are practically unknown to most Hindus, and the texts are seldom drawn upon for information or advice. One can be a good Hindu and believe in one god, many gods, or no gods at all. For Hindus, contradictory ideas are not a problem, as all reality is seen as one. And there is this famous example, which is called the blind man, or the blind men and the elephant. And what this example tries to portray is the idea is if you have an elephant, and, you, and, and nobody's seen an elephant before or knows that this is an elephant, and you have these several blind men that are all coming and approaching the elephant in different ways, from different places, each one is going to touch the elephant from one side or one part. And based on this experience that they have touching the elephant, they're going to conclude different things about the elephant. So the blind man who goes to the, the, horn, the, the tusk is going to say, oh, this is like a spear. The one who touches the large ear of the elephant would say it is like a fan. Or the one who touches the large side of the elephant would say it's a wall or who touches the tail would say it's a rope, or the leg could say it's a tree, or the trunk could, could say it's, it's a snake. So in all of these different um, ways, these people are touching the same elephant, 
and yet they are all concluding different things about the elephant. So in this way, they are saying all these different forms of worship, all these different religions, all these things are all actually the same because they are all touching the same elephant and they are, they are just looking at it in different ways. But there are problems with this analogy. The first problem is every single one of these men is wrong because it's not any of those things. It's actually an elephant. But nobody realizes that it's an elephant because they are all don't have the full information about it. So in Christianity, we believe that God reveals to us the truth. And so when we come to uh, you know, approaching Christianity and to understanding the reality of Christianity, we do so based on the revelation that God gave to us. And if somebody comes with a partial information, that partial information might be completely wrong, right? So that's the first problem. The second problem is we can say that the blind men are lazy in the sense that once they touch one part of the elephant, nobody tries to go to see what the rest of the elephant feels like. You know, imagine as a blind person that you're confronted with this animal uh, or this, this object and you touch one part of it and you're like, that's it. I'm not touching anything else. I'm not going to try to determine anything else about it. I'm satisfied with the limited knowledge that I have and I'm not trying to determine anything else. So if, if, if a person was really um, honest with themselves and wanted to understand the fullness of the truth, they would do more investigation than simply touching it in one place and then be done. And anyone who did try to do further investigation would, would quickly discover that it is none of those things. The third problem with this, and this reflects a big difference between a philosophy like Hinduism versus um, a, a Christianity, is that in Christianity we believe that the truth itself about God is unknowable except through his revelation. How is it that we are going to determine God? We cannot go up to heaven and to observe him. We cannot do experiments to determine his characteristics. We don't know anything about him beyond what he allows us to know, beyond what he tells us. So in Christianity, we are acknowledging our limitations and we acknowledge that God is the source of knowledge. God is the one who reveals himself to us and we are the recipients of that knowledge. And then we are called to take action based on the information that we have received. Whereas in this example of the elephant, it is really up to these human philosophers who through using their mind, trying to determine the truth. So the question is, is what if the elephant could talk? What if the elephant could reveal itself as an elephant? And to say about itself, actually, I'm none of these things. I'm not a spear. I'm not a rope. I'm not a tree. I'm actually an elephant. And then suddenly, all of these human efforts to discover the truth would fail. It's like, okay, you're an elephant. You're not these things. So in Christianity, God speaks. In Christianity, God reveals himself. And so we receive that from him. And we understand that from him. And we believe that by faith in him, not through kind of limited human efforts to determine the truth. There are, however, two foundational concepts that almost all Hindus believe. And they are reincarnation and karma. Reincarnation is the process that the Atman, the Atman is, uh, is the soul. The process that the Atman, the eternal uncreated soul, 
must endure while on the great wheel of samsara. The great wheel of samsara is like a representation of the process of continual reincarnation. So they see it this way, is that this process of continual reincarnation is this wheel of samsara where a soul must go through thousands or even millions of lives, all full of suffering, before reaching moksha. Moksha is like the ultimate um, goal it's not like a paradise or heaven like we in Christianity envision. Moksha is essentially uh, kind of dissolving into nothingness. This is the goal. It's more of like an escape from this continual wheel of suffering that the person endures throughout their many, many, many lives. That is kind of the goal in Hinduism. Moksha is the goal, as it is liberation from suffering and uniting with the infinite, the end of the soul cycling. For the Hindu, karma is the cumulative value of one's life actions, good minus bad, which determines one's reincarnation level after death. Many elements of Hinduism and also Buddhism, because Buddhism shares a lot of things with Hinduism, um, have actually kind of seeped in to our culture. For instance, we speak about karma sometimes. We hear people who are not Hindu speak about the concept of karma, right? Or people who practice yoga, right? Maybe not for religious purposes, but they practice it for like physical, for physical reasons, like a type of exercise or, or meditation. Um, but the karma is an integral part of the concept of Hinduism because this is what will determine what will happen to you in your next reincarnation. If you had good karma, throughout your life, then you will be reincarnated into something better than what you are now. But if you have bad karma, meaning you had did a lot of bad things, you will get, you, you will go down. So you'll be reincarnated into a worse state, a state that is filled with more suffering than, um, than you have. So karma is, again, as, as Christians, we don't believe in karma. Okay, we don't, we don't, we don't believe that um, somehow our actions are going to directly influence what happened to us in terms of, like if I did something bad, then like some calamity is gonna fall upon me. We don't believe this, right? Actually, one of the problems like we see in the Psalms, the Psalmist is crying out to God and he's saying, why did the wicked prosper? Why is it that we see people who are wicked, who are doing bad things, are prospering in the world, right? Are prospering in the world. They are not like, um, there is no clear, justice there's no clear immediate justice that's happening to them instantly right which is maybe what we want to see okay of course we know that god is ultimately just and there will be justice for all of us in in you know in the in, in the judgment day that all of us who have done evil there will be judgment but there's also forgiveness there's also mercy of god right so even if someone lived a life of sin Right, like the right-hand thief, for instance, who lived a life, his life as a thief, as an evil person, at the very last moment, with a genuine repentance, he asked the Lord to remember him when he comes into his kingdom, and the Lord responded, today you will be with me in paradise. So our system of understanding morality is a very different system than uh, the system of Hinduism. But sometimes this thinking seeps into our mind. Maybe because it's something we, we are exposed to so often that the idea that if something bad happens to me, we immediately begin to think, is this because, is this a punishment from God? Because I did such and such? 
or if something you know happens to me i say well why isn't god rewarding me i have been you know doing these good things and so on as though our actions are directly influencing what happens to us and that's not the case okay that's not the case positive karma would seemingly raise one station and negative karma would lower it hinduism had never been a missionary religion until the 20th century and is largely limited to India and groups of emigrant Indians, mainly because of its infusion with the caste system. Okay, the caste system is a system that for many, many years uh, existed in India, where essentially it's a class system where you are born into a certain class, and based on what class you're in, you have certain opportunities or you're treated a certain way, and if you're born into one of the lower castes, you live a life of you know of suffering you don't have a lot of financial mobility you don't have as many opportunities if you are born into one of the higher castes then you have a lot of opportunities and you tend to have a better life um, and so on so this is uh, traditionally what has been happening in in in, in india for a long time um, the caste system has been officially abolished it doesn't officially exist but to a large extent there is still a sense uh, among uh, those of the hindu religion because of the karma system, that if somebody is born in a bad situation, if you are born poor, for instance, then you are seen as deserving it to some extent, right? You are seen as deserving it because the reason you were born that way is because you must have lived a very bad life in the previous life. So there is less of an emphasis on charity or trying to lift people out of poverty and so on because it is, it is part of the religion. Right? Essentially, what happens to you is actually your own doing, whether good or evil. This is not to say, however, that Hindu thought has not influenced American culture. The clearest depiction of this in the unquestioned Vedantic motto, the world's religions offer varying approaches to God, each one true and valid, each religion offering the world a unique and irreplaceable path to God-realization. This is true, actually, of, uh, of Christianity in their, in their own view. For instance, someone can be a worshiper of Jesus Christ and believe that he is their God. They don't believe, of course, in monotheism, as Christians do, but they are not against the idea in believing that Jesus is God and worshiping him, right? Because he is just one of many, many different gods in their system. Views on God. Brahman is the supreme reality for the Hindu. It is the thing to which uh, the, the divine Atman is trying to unite. So the divine Atman is the uncreated soul. The so each of our souls is the Atman. Trying to reu reunite or trying to unite with Brahman. While the Brahman is impersonal, many gods or incarnations of gods who are worshipped by Hindus have personal attributes. So Brahman is like an entity. But there are the i think they call them the avatars of brahman the realizations of brahman the incarnations of brahman are like the the gods that are worshipped okay that all are fundamentally linked together but each one is unique and this is what we would refer to as the different hindu gods chief among them are brahma vishnu and shiva these are like some of the main gods that people would worship in the hindu religion in the Hindu trinity, 
hear Trinity with a lowercase t. They don't believe in the Trinity in the sense that Christians believe in the Trinity. But these are like the three kind of main gods that they worship. In the Hindu Trinity, Brahma is the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva is the destroyer. Avatars or incarnations of Vishnu have been sent to earth to bring the message of salvation to man. Vishnu's incarnations include Rama, a benevolent king, and Krishna, an impetuous, violent, and erotic figure. The gods are sometimes amoral. Their freedom from the usual restraints imposed on humans is often celebrated, and they are often represented with sexual imagery. In addition to these main three gods, there are thousands, perhaps millions, of gods and demigods to choose from. The material universe is not the creation of a personal god, but is rather a sort of unconscious emanation from the divine. So they don't look at things in terms of there is a god who created the universe, but the universe is simply a byproduct of the existence of the divinity. As such, it is beginningless, and some would say endless, and two, it is unreal, an illusion, because the only true reality is Brahman. Okay, which is what everything is trying to unite with. So beginningless, again, because it is not created in time um, and, and, and perhaps endless. Hindus believe that the universe pulsates, recurrently being destroyed and recreated over periods lasting about 4 billion years. The world is seen as a huge series of repeated cycles, each cycle being nearly a copy of the last. Man is compelled to play a part in this gigantic, illusory, and wearisome universe. Each human soul is also beginningless and has gone through a series of reincarnations. Hinduism solves the problem of the existence of suffering and evil. All present suffering is exactly deserved, being the payback of one's karma, the accumulation of deeds done in past lives, and all present evil will be exactly repaid in the form of suffering in future lives. As a result, traditional Hinduism often has not paid much attention to re relieving the suffering of people, although social reform movements have risen in the last century. What is not addressed is how the cycle began for the uncreated Atman and why it is separated from Brahman to begin with. Life is seen as basically painful, full of distress that is only temporarily masked by earthly pleasures. So it's a very kind of pessimistic view of everything. We believe that God created the universe and the world as fundamentally good, and he created it for the benefit of man, and he created the human race, the human beings, out of his love, to show love to us and to benefit from and to enjoy the creation. And it is through sin, the disobedience of man to God, that the world became corrupted and we as human beings became corrupted. However, in Christianity, yes, there is suffering in the world, but God turns that suffering into means, a means of salvation and a means of spiritual growth for the ultimate purpose of reuniting with him. And the reunification with God is a positive thing. It is, it is, it is to... to uh, partake of the divine nature of God. It is, it is to be reunited and to be one with God, not to simply dissolve and, and to, to escape suffering. So I would say that in Hinduism, 
paradise or the afterlife, the eternal life, if you want to call it that for them, is essentially the escape from suffering, right? It is the escape from something negative, something that is painful, something that they want to escape from. Whereas in Christianity, yes, we are also speaking in the terms of this world is full of suffering and we want to end the suffering, but we are fundamentally moving to something that is positive, not just the escape from suffering, but to a new existence, a new glorification um, that is full of joy and hope and peace and all these wonderful things that we are looking forward to, right? So, so I- in some sense, the, the Hindu religion is, is very negative. It's, it's very negative in that it's focusing only on suffering and the escape from it. The final goal of salvation or moksha in Hinduism is escape from the endless round of birth, death, and rebirth. That can mean an eternal resting place for the individual in in the arms of a loving personal God, but it usually means the dissolving of all personality into the unimaginable abyss of Brahman. The dissolving of all personality essentially that one ceases to exist, exist as an individual. We, we, we simply dissolve away, right? We, again, are trying to escape from this cycle of suffering, so we simply dissolve into nothingness, okay? Dissolving into this divine that is Brahman. There are basically three paths from which to choose for moksha. They are the path of works, karma, the path of knowledge, and I'm sure I'm not pronouncing these right, jnana, and the path of passionate devotion, or bhakti. When following the path of works, the person strives towards salvation by performing works without regard for personal gain, must follow the occupation of his caste, marry within his caste, eat or not eat certain foods. By following these obligations, the person using his path may hope for a better position in the upcoming reincarnation. So this path of salvation is all about attaining enough karma, doing so many good works such that we attain enough karma and that this high level of karma would then allow a person to experience this uh, moksha. A more difficult and exclusive path is the path of knowledge. This path is available only to men and then only of the highest castes. It includes self-renunciation and exploring the sacred scriptures, usually with the help of a guru. It usually has three steps, hearing or reading, thinking, and meditation through yoga. Hindus believe the greatest obstacle to moksha are your own body, mind, and personality. Through yoga, the body is controlled using body postures, solitude and breathing exercises the mind is restrained through meditation techniques using mantras a mantra is a word or sound repeated to aid concentration and meditation the self is suppressed by gurus or masters who humiliate as well as teach so in this second form of salvation it's more like the ascetic path it's more of like if you want to call it the monasticism of Hinduism. 
It is about self-control. It's about being enlightened in understanding. It's about controlling the self. As opposed to the karma path, which is all about doing good acts, this is more about self-control. By far the most common path chosen is that of passionate devotion. Devotees of this path may choose any one of the thousands of gods, goddesses, or demigods in the Hindu arena and passionately worship that god. It satisfies the longing for a more emotional and personal approach to religion. In the way of devotion, the focus is one obtaining the mercy is on obtaining the mercy and help of a god in finding release from the cycle of reincarnation. Some Hindus conceive of ultimate salvation as absorption into the the one divine reality with all loss of individual existence. Others conceive of it as a heavenly existence in adoration of the personal God. For a Hindu, also following Christ along this path would be legitimate. Most Hindus consider that they have many as in thousands of reincarnations ahead of them before they can find final salvation, although some sects believe that a gracious divinity will carry them along the way more quickly. So the belief here is that Salvation is attained through the merciful actions of a god. So the focus on worshiping su- such a god will aid the person to accelerate the, the process and to end the cycle of reincarnation more quickly. Right? So those are the three paths. Okay? Um, the path of karma, or doing good works. There is the path of knowledge and self-discipline. And there is the path of devotion, which is worshiping um, one of the gods. Morals. Because of the vast number of reincarnations of any individual, Hinduism recognizes that most people's lack of spiritual development means they must lead normal lives. Normal lives meaning as though they are not like living as ascetic monks, for instance. However, it is thought that a person, as a person matures, he can grow closer to the ideal of full renunciation of the personality. Thus, pursuit of wealth and love of, of the opposite sex are considered proper to certain stages of the great wheel of samsara. When people grow old in terms of reincarnations, meaning they, they are getting closer and closer to this uh, dissolving into the divine, they, are, they have already lived many, many, many reincarnations. They are old in terms of reincarnations. They often leave behind their worldly possessions to pursue the life of a wandering monk. So it sees that people who have accepted such a life and are able to accept such a life are further along in this process and they're getting near the end of, their, of the cycle of the wheel of samsara. Yet no matter what stage of life one is in, renouncing the fruits of your labors is the supreme law of morality. Actually, I was... I saw this video, I think it was the Buddhist monks, but they, they have the same concept. Um, they would spend such a, a long time uh, making this kind of, um, I don't know if you would call it like a mural with this colored powder. So they would have these little devices that would um, allow this powder, like kind of like sand almost, to, to, to drop from like something that looked like a stick. And they would use this to make like a very, very elaborate and beautiful pattern. And it's clear that it would take days and days and days to make. And so they would make it very, very carefully until finally this big, it's very big, uh, it would be done. And then after they make it, they destroy it. And they destroy it 
to teach themselves not to be attached to anything that is in the world. Okay? And this is part of their ascetic practice. Renouncing the fruit of your labor. Hindus seek to remain conscious of the illusory nature of this world and so progressively deny themselves, at least in thought, all forms of material, emotional, and even spiritual rewards and property. For centuries, the notions of reincarnation and karma have been used to support the cruelties of the Indian caste system, which relegates the majority of people to poverty and subservience. Again, the, the belief that anyone who is living a miserable life, it is because of their own actions, it is something that they deserve. Probably as a result of Western influence, the caste system has been substantially dismantled, although the idea that all human suffering is deserved is still responsible for a great deal of injustice. Hindus have a magical and legalistic notion that one can acquire spiritual points through contact with all manner of holy objects and persons. That is by and large the Hindu notion of grace. Many keep an image of a family god in the house, and villages generally have their local icon as well. Animals such as cows, monkeys, and snakes are revered. Certain rivers, the Ganges in particular, are thought holy, and bathing in them is thought to improve one's karma. For the most progressed on the path of knowledge, certain portions of scriptures are memorized and chanted, sacred stories are acted out in plays and songs, and gods are prayed to in an ecstatic manner. Holy men are highly revered, and in serving them, Hindus hope that some of their holiness will rub off and aid them to moksha. Hinduism is really the smorgasbord of religions. There is a little something for everyone, unless, of course, you happen to be the untouchables. So the untouchables are like the, the absolute lowest caste uh, in, in, in their, in their uh, culture, in their religion. Those so low in India, they are not even part of the caste system and therefore not eligible for salvation. They are continually reincarnated as untouchable. So anyone who's untouchable, no matter what they do, they will always be reincarnated as untouchable. So they have no hope, no hope at all, this group. In which case, your uncreated, eternal Atman will never be united with Brahman. What there is not is an absolute truth. In Christianity, we believe in a single truth that is knowable through the revelation of God. Our personal loving God became incarnate only once in human history and teaches that he is the way, the truth, and the life, not one of many ways as Hinduism proposes. Again, Hinduism is very pluralistic. They believe there are many paths. Even if those paths contradict each other, they, they believe that they're all equally valid. Whereas in Christianity, we believe that God is the one who reveals truth to us, and there is one truth, and that truth is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our God created our souls for the purpose of communing with him. We are not divine within ourselves. While our soul is eternal, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. There is no need for constant recycling because we serve a God of grace who gives us all we need on our path to him. First and foremost, the conquering of our greatest enemy, death, through his crucifixion and resurrection. So, Again, it's very, very different than than what it is um, that we believe. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. So it, there is no, um, we don't know that there is an individual founder 
but the the texts that they use the Vedas were written over a period of 1400 years so by many many different people um, so it's believed that that group the Aryans were the ones who started kind of the the Hindu teachings but then of course it expanded over a long period of time of additional people adding more and more to it unlike unlike other religions like like um, Islam for instance or when we spoke about the Mormon uh, religion or the Jehovah's Witness where it was all kind of founded by an individual this is, is not like that well it's hard to say that something is fixed right because they believe in all manner of different gods and all manner of different religions that can still be valid as a part of Hinduism so I think even asking the question about it being fixed like to say that it's fixed assumes that there is like a truth or a practice that's that everyone is practicing but it's not right so I wouldn't say it's fixed no yes So when it comes to, so how did it start, right, when we speak about yoga? It started from this, okay? And it was kind of secularized uh, in the West, and people practice it, but they practice it also as a type of meditation, right? So we have to be very careful with it. We have to be careful with it. Why, what, is it there, what is it that we're actually practicing, right? It's like if we go and we, we practice any um, uh, act of any other religion, right? And we say, oh, well, we're not actually practicing the religion, but we're practicing this. So I don't want to go as far as to say, uh, you know, anyone who practices yoga for any reason is wrong. But I will say that we have to be careful what actually we're doing and be aware of what we are doing. Because some people take it as just a type of exercise, okay? Whereas, w but, but even as someone is practicing it as that, we have to make sure we understand where it came from and how we're practicing it. And, you know, for instance, if we're going to teach our children about it, again, make sure that they understand what it is, okay? So it's unfortunate. I mean, it's unfortunate even that we gave it that name. I think the name is the problematic thing. It's not the action itself. There's nothing wrong with the action of it. It's more it's linking to the Eastern religions. That's the problem, yeah. Yes. Yes. They do believe that you can become something that's not human, I believe. So that would be considered like a very low, like if you're going down, 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 like that would be, uh, like th that would be a, a, a very bad karma uh, for them. So they believe that a person will eventually stop being reincarnated and be united in Brahman, which is the divine, as long as their karma continues to increase. So that's what those three paths are. So the way to end the karma cycle, or sorry, the reincarnation cycle, is either to gain enough karma over all of your existence, like all of your lives, to eventually say, again, it's not like there is a judgment and someone is judging this. It's just, I don't know, uh, 
a, a natural phenomenon that a person once they reach a certain level of karma now they are no longer going to be reincarnated again or the second one was the path of, of knowledge and self-discipline where again once someone advances enough in that they will stop the cycle of reincarnation or the devotion path where you're essentially asking for the help of one of the gods to help end your path of reincarnation so they would say that if a person is reincarnated as one of the highest castes and or, or someone who is currently like a Buddhist or sorry a, a Hindu monk then they would be close to the end of that cycle of reincarnation and eventually would stop reincarnating so that's their goal their goal is to stop suffering by stopping living they want to stop living so they no longer suffer and the way you do that is with those three paths uh, no I mean, there are people who will say, oh, well, I remember this and this, and people will come with, like, saying, oh, like, some evidence. But no, in general, like, there n nobody remembers. They don't come back and say, I remember who I was before and so on. Yeah, so there's no, there's no like, direct evidence of it. One interesting thing, the Dalai Lama, if you've heard about the Dalai Lama, and I want to say that Ramat says right, the Dalai Lama, after he dies... They believe that he is reincarnated and they try to find the person that he is reincarnated as by asking him questions about things that only the previous Dalai Lama would know to try to identify him, to make him the Dalai Lama again. I believe that's right. Yes. Well, the gods don't reincarnate, but they have thousands of gods. So I think there's like no, no, no end of what we could find. In, yeah, these ones like the Vishnu and the uh, Brahman um, and uh, Shiva are like the three, like maybe the most popular or like the the most common that we hear about. And then they all, they have like incarnations of them. I think that the the avatars like that are also like uh, Rama. Krishna and these other ones, those are the ones that are, are the most common, but there are other ones as well. So we definitely believe in doing good, but we don't believe in the consequences of doing good like this yeah and we also believe in forgiveness right so one thing we have not talked about at all is the concept of forgiveness right so someone could do bad but repent and god does not hold that person accountable for what it is that they did because he forgives them in this system there is no forgiveness like you did it you did it and so so yes in the sense that we believe doing good is is the right thing and they also but but what it implies and and how do we deal with forgiveness is very different yeah yeah so i would say there's a lot of similarity there because also in islam they believe salvation is by good works and that your good works outweigh your bad works and that's similar to the karma system yeah in that sense Okay, let's pray.
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, and we thank you, O Lord, for revealing yourself to us and showing us the truth. We thank you, O God, for the salvation that you offer us, even though we do not deserve it. We thank you, O Lord, for comforting our hearts and to leading us to yourself and to eternal joy with you. We ask, O God, that you help us to know what is it that other people believe in the world and how to bring them to the truth and how to share, O Lord, the truth with them so that they also can be saved and they can enjoy the benefits that we have. We ask you, O Lord, to guide us and protect us and keep us away from sin and teach us, O Lord, to be disciplined and obedient in everything that we do so that we, O Lord, can continue to walk with you and to experience the joy of your presence at all times. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us as they are daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the community, the gift of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.